You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Dr. John Brunges with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources about sandhill cranes in the eastern U.S. We concluded our previous episode where we, we, we covered sandhill crane ecology, a brief history of how that population had recovered through the years, and led up to the point where we started discussing harvest opportunities that are now available in the eastern U.S. as a result of the, the growth of this eastern sandhill crane population. That's where we're going to pick up today. So with that, let me welcome John back into the show. John, thanks for joining us again. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me back. On the previous episode, we talked about the importance of science informing or began to talk about the importance of science informing regulated harvest, responsible harvest. We saw what the effect of uncontrolled harvest was prior to the Migratory Bird Treaty and the act that brought it about. Uh, And so going forward, it was very obvious to all of us as waterfowl managers, to those that came before us, I should say, that if we're going to do this, we need to we need information to properly understand the population, understand how it works, understand how the impacts of harvest affect this population. Uh, I think harvest of sandhill cranes has a longer history in the mid-continent than it does in the eastern uh, eastern U.S. So, uh, I want to I want to hear some stories from you about how this unfolded in the eastern U.S. You know, you you work in the Mississippi Flyway. You have counterparts in the Atlantic Flyway, all all of which have a vested interest in this eastern population, and so you kind of have to all agree on what this harvest strategy is going to be, or you have to first, I guess, determine whether or not 
the current population size justifies a harvest. Then you have to figure out the harvest strategy. So there's a lot that goes into this, and it's a very collaborative approach. Uh, the management of this resource, because it's a migratory bird, uh, rests with the federal government by virtue of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and this bird falling under that jurisdiction. But the states play a very crucial role in in the management of the harvest of these birds. So, John, what's in, what was involved? How did things begin? You know, when, whether it be surveys, we had to first figure out what the population size was. I mean, what were some of the first steps involved in thinking about whether and when we could explore harvest opportunities for the eastern population of sandhill cranes? Yep. As you set that up, I thought, man, this is really complicated. So uh, let me, let me, yeah, start. <laughs> Absolutely. The starting with the most important part is, as you said, how many are there? I mean, the biggest, the first question before we harvest anything is that we really need to have some grasp on how many, how many there are. And, uh, it, you know, sandhill cranes are a species that we didn't really know how many there were in the Eastern U.S. And until uh, the 1970s, we started doing a fall count of birds. And, and what happens is those birds, every year after they finish breeding, they go, they leave their breeding areas and they kind of go to concentration areas. And those concentration areas, we started counting them somewhere around Halloween each year. Uh, and we counted how many on a given day we could go out and find. And mostly those counts were, again, in in Michigan and Wisconsin and maybe into Indiana and a few a few other of those states around the Great Lakes and and what we found was that there were a, there was a a small population but it was continuing to grow over time until the until around 2000 there started to be more and more interest from folks like okay we go out west we go to the central flyway and we hunt cranes and now we see cranes here in in the east how come we can't hunt these and so from those surveys, from those original uh, surveys, we we were able to start looking at this population and try to decide: is it something that was hunting an, an opportunity here in Kentucky, in in the eastern U.S.? And so that's where Kent Van Horn, who is a, a waterfowl biologist with the uh, Wisconsin DNR, uh, started working on the original draft of this management plan for cranes and and. Worked on it for a number of years until 2010. They came up with a with a management plan that that allowed for the initiation of hunting seasons on cranes in the eastern U.S. And that management plan again was a was a combined effort between the Mississippi Flyway and the Atlantic Flyway because they they nest certainly in the Mississippi Flyway and then they migrate south. And at that time, almost the entire population went to Central Florida and wintered in central Florida. So they were crossing across both flyways. And so they were a shared resource of both flyways. And so it's important for both flyways to be involved in writing this plan. And so what we what they did is they wrote a plan and here's what we think we can do. We had this level of harvest, which we think is acceptable. And we then, like you said, to submit that information to the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service decides yes or no, we can that this, this plan is appropriate and that it would guide us for hunting seasons uh, when it comes to hunting cranes in the future. And so that 2010 plan laid the groundwork for the first season in the United, in the eastern United States, uh, and that was in 2011 in Kentucky. 
and we were followed a couple of years later in 2013 by Tennessee uh, that had a, that had a season. And then last year, for the first time, uh, Alabama had a hunting season. So we now have three states in the eastern United States hunting sandhill cranes. John, I'm looking at a graph in a report that I that came out this year. I think it's a report that comes out every year, the status of the Sandhill Crane populations in North America. And I'm looking at this graph of the fall population counts for the eastern population of Sandhill Cranes. And it, in the late 70s, it looks like that number was around 15,000. And as you mentioned, now we're up close to 100,000, 90,000, somewhere, somewhere in that range. The that population started increased all increasing almost exponentially in the early uh, mid two thousands. That's pretty remarkable. Anything noteworthy about what might have happened then, or is it just one of those natural phenomena of populations where it gets to a certain level and then kind of exponential growth takes off? Is that what we're seeing here? Uh, I th- I think if you plot this graph, you can see a pretty nice. Uh, example of what you were taught by the back in population biology about how populations, you know, how uh, basically things that are impacted by carrying capacity uh, grow. It starts out slow. And these are, again, would be because these are such a slow reproducing bird. I mean, you know, it took from 1918 to, you know, 1975 to get to 20,000, I mean, to whatever, to you know, that handful of birds. And so, and then after that, it just continued to grow, grow and grow and grow to the point where, again, today we are, uh, you know, I guess you said 1979, 14,000. So for between 1918, we went from 100 to 14,000. And then it just has continued. Now, some, I will say some of that in there, some of that growth is a result of us doing a better job of surveying the birds. Yeah. Uh, that the numbers might not been quite as low as they appear because we are we make more effort. And uh, again, I mentioned Dave Franzak in the last survey. He is uh, in the last, I guess, in our last talk that that Dave has one of did his master's degree on sandhill cranes in the eastern population, and he has done a lot of this work and and. He really found that the survey effort, the number we get really is tied to survey effort. And so the years where we can get out and do a really good job surveying, we have some good numbers and other years. So over time, we've gotten better and better at surveying them and we catch more and more. But there's clearly the population has grown during that period as well. Yeah. So some of those early estimates, to put a finer point on it, some of those earlier estimates might have been uh, smaller than the actual population out there. And these are just indices anyway, right? Absolutely. Again, remember, it's a the fall count is a one day we go out and count as many cranes as we can see. It is not it's not really it's a minimum count. It's not really an index. It's it. it, Yeah, we're not estimating the number we this is we counted. In 2019, we counted 89,513 cranes in the population. So we know that the number is bigger than that. You know, some of Dave's work, he put satellite transmitters on birds and followed or had over probably close to 100 cranes that he had satellite transmitters on. And we saw that about 20% of the population is not in a place where they could get counted. So during that fall survey, so we, we, we would guess that the number instead of if it's 90,000, it's probably 20% or more higher than that, uh, just because they're just getting missed. They're in places where we don't get them. But it gives us a minimum population size. And so if they started to decline, we would see, okay, this minimum is getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the 
to the point where we would you know, restrict seasons or close seasons. I'm not an active participant on any of the flyweight technical committees, but I have certainly sat in on given presentations to and been part of discussions in a number of these tech, uh, technical flyweight tech section or technical committee uh meetings and i under uh, so i appreciate the level of discussion the level of debate that goes on when new suggestions for harvest changes come up uh and so i can't help but kind of wonder how that looked for sandhill cranes as the this as this new harvest opportunity in the eastern u.s was first being debated i actually remember being in some of these discussions but or being present at some of the discussions but I guess, John, my question is, when this was first brought up, when the proposal for an eastern for, – for a harvest opportunity for the eastern population of sandhill cranes first came up, form, the first formal proposal was made, did it go through that year or was it one of those times where it's like, well, this is just the first effort. We're going to propose this and see what other pieces of – see how much support we have for it, see what other information we need to collect because it's not as though the state of Kentucky can go to the Mississippi Flyway Council and say, we want to hunt these birds. We're, y'all okay with that? Sure. Yeah, let's go right. ahead. It doesn't work that, it doesn't work that way. There has to be, uh, I, I, you're going to be able to tell me this, but almost it requires consensus on the part of, uh, of the participants. So how much, how much time from the conception of this idea to the actual approval of that first harvest opportunity for Kentucky uh, had passed? Well, again, it started with the management plan and it started with that uh, people in this flyway, some of our, our hunters, be it in Kentucky or be it in Wisconsin or be it wherever, the, some of our constituents started saying, we're seeing cranes, we're seeing more and more cranes. Why don't we have a hunting season? And so from those requests, the idea of a you know, managed hunt came along. And so the process first is to have a management plan in place. And so that managed, again, I mentioned Kent Van Horn earlier, he spearheaded it. He was the the, uh, the lead author on that, and they worked on it for a number of years. It wasn't a, okay, one night we we're going to write, sit down and write this. They worked on it for, for a number of years, uh, had input from a variety of folks. Uh, there were some hard feelings, some uh, people that were mad and people that were happy, and they went round and round, and then they finally came up in 2010 with the management plan that we, we fall under right now, the Eastern Population management plan. And that plan was approved by the Mississippi Flyway and by the Atlantic Flyway. And and then under that plan, it had a basically a strategy that allowed states to then put in their own plan for a hunting season. And so that that basically what that did is allowed a state, say like Kentucky, Kentucky could then write up here is here is how we are going to hunt Sandhill Cranes. And the management plan had some very specific guidelines. You can things that you can do, you can't do. And so Kentucky wrote a plan. Here's how we plan on hunting sandhill cranes in Kentucky. Here's what we expect our harvest will be. Here's how we're going to control that. And then uh, so then that plan, Kentucky's plan was reviewed in the Mississippi Flyway and the Atlantic Flyway, approved by those two flyways, and then sent to the Fish and Wildlife Service via the Service Regulation Committee, they reviewed the plan, and uh, from there we had a hunting season. Now it was a rocky road, as you mentioned. It was a uh, there was a whole lot of people 
that were concerned and and it took uh took some doing i spent a lot of my life in that that year or two uh dealing with sandhill cranes in this season and so they're you know the sandhill cranes are one of those species that people feel incredibly strongly about whether you you're a hunter and you pursue them and if you you said you've had them so i assume you hunted them uh they are the hardest darn thing in the world to hunt they will beat you in so many ways uh so people that hunt them love the challenge that they provide bird watchers absolutely love and 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 adore watching cranes and 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 so there's a whole lot of people that really had strong feelings about cranes and so it was a it was an it was an interesting process to from kind of start to finish the idea of having you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. The hunting season. John, thank you for all the details there with regard to how new states are able to request or propose uh, a sandhill crane harvest. And so one of the key parts of uh, of a state's plan, as I understand it, is, um, well, maybe this isn't true, but I, I, there's some kind of permit system that's required in each of those states. It's not like any hunter can go out and harvest a sandhill crane. You have to apply for a special permit, right? Absolutely. And the, the plan, the, the, the plan that Kent worked on that gives us the ability to hunt, he modeled it on swan hunting in, in Eastern U.S. If you've ever been to North Carolina and hunted, a sw- hunted for swans or Maryland or wherever, you have to apply for a permit and you get, you know, uh, North Carolina that used to be 5,000, uh, 5,000 people could, would get a tag, a single tag for an individual bird. And so he based Kent based the crane plan on, on that same system. And so we, when Kentucky, uh, formulated our plan, we basically were issued 400 permits with each of the, the 400 permits, 
uh, getting two tags each. So, you know, if you were drawn, you got to go and you, you could shoot two sandhill cranes in a season. And uh, so, and that's basically the still the way everybody has to do it. We still have a permit system. So we know absolutely the maximum number that would be harvested in any situation. And so right now, uh, Kentucky issues about 1,200 total tags, uh, 500 or so permits and 1,200 tags. And so uh, Tennessee has a few more than that because they have a little bit larger populations and Alabama also issues about 1,200 tags. And so, you know, the maximum amount we could shoot is controlled by those tags that are out there. So, you, yes, it is a controlled permit system. Uh, every, every, everywhere, Kentucky, Tennessee, and uh, Alabama all have a lottery to issue those 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 permits and so it's uh it's not something you can just go decide tomorrow i'm gonna go hunt you have to plan ahead right now it's uh you know that people in kentucky apply in september and find out in october whether or not they were drawn and then they can start making their plans for the hunting season in early december well making a make a connection to some of our previous episodes here if anyone is interested in hunting sandhill cranes and they want to go through this permitting process and i'm sure all this i know all this information these instructions are going to be provided on those sites but this is one of those birds for which we have to have hip certification now if you're a waterfowl hunter if you're a a dove hunter any other migratory bird hunter and you get your hip certification you're covered but let's say you just decided i want to go hunt cranes and you haven't already hunted in a given year either of those other migratory bird uh, bird groups this is another one of those for which you have to have harvest information program certification and again how we know how we can have confidence in the recommendations for these these harvest programs these harvest plans is partly informed by certainly now that we're getting harvest is informed by the data provided by um, by the people that are participating in these surveys, are there John? Are there special surveys that go out to HIP participants to your permit participants? I should say permit recipients for a sandhill crane harvest. Yes, we have a mandatory. We do a couple of things. One, once you get drawn, before you get your permit, you must take a test to prove that you can tell the difference between sandhill cranes and great blue herons and most especially whooping cranes. And so we have a, we, you have to go through this, I don't know, 15 minute educational uh, thing on our website and it'll, you know, you'll get shown a variety of pictures and ask a series of questions and, and you have to demonstrate that you can tell the difference between a a sandhill crane and some of these other non-target species. So once you complete that test, once you successfully complete that test, then you are issued your permit. And so once you are issued your permit, that you are required by law in Kentucky to, to complete a postseason survey. And you have about two weeks after the season is over to come back and then tell us uh, how many days you hunted, what you, you know, those kind of things. And also in Kentucky, we, we for cranes, we are a telecheck species. So if you shoot a crane, then you must telecheck that species, basically either call in or use your internet to check in that species. And so we have instantaneous knowledge of harvest in the state because they are, uh, they you're required to do it, uh, well, within 24 hours, we know what our harvest is each day. Uh, so we, we're able to follow it care, very carefully. So we, we keep very careful watch on what harvest is happening and, and, and how hunters are doing. And, and again, as part of our plan, we are required to, uh, 
from our hunters have at least 80% response rates from our hunters and know what they did and how much, how many they harvested. And so we do much better. Usually we get all but a handful and mostly those handful are folks that somebody else signed them up and they never even realized that they, uh, that they had signed up or they didn't hunt at all and then just forgot. So we, we keep after them and try to make sure we get as much information from folks as possible. But yes, again, yeah. it's a, it's a species we talked about. It's not the last episode. It's not mallards, how we manage them, yeah. how we harvest them. It has to be very different because they are such a, such a long lived, slow reproducing species that they can't handle the level of pressure that, something like a mallard or a dove or something like that would. So they can be harvested and it can be done in a, in a way that's safe to the population. And we're harvesting birds now and the population's continuing to grow. And so we, you know, but you just have to make sure that you do it the right way. Yeah. I'm looking at another table here in this report and across those three states where it is currently permitted, you kind of mentioned these numbers previously, but it looks like last year there were 5,400 permits issued across those three states and that yielded only 1,100 harvested cranes. John, are there any other states that are thinking about uh, a sandhill crane uh, season in the eastern U.S.? None, none that would be happy about me talking about it on the radio. Probably, there have been, there have been, there have been. You know, it's it's a the the it has to be a a basically the sportsmen and sportsmen and sportswomen of that state have to come to their biologist and and tell them that they're interested in it. And depends on state process. I know that there have been a couple times where Wisconsin uh, their sportsmen's groups have asked for a season and it hasn't made it through the legislature in a way that their biologists could ask for a season. Uh, you know, so there've been some discussions, but, uh, you know, there, I know that there've been some, uh, other places, but for right now there, there are, there's nobody waiting tomorrow to have a hunting season. There's nobody in the pipe. And one of the things that we kind of talked about earlier, you have to, to have a hunting season, you have to basically apply a year ahead. You have to submit your plan as state. If if a new state were to come online and say, say if Georgia and the Atlantic Flyway this year decide they want to have a hunting season, they would have to submit a plan to the Atlantic Flyway, the Mississippi Flyway, say, here's how we're going to hunt birds. Here's how we're going to do it. And they would, uh, and that plan would be reviewed by those flyways, uh, and if approved by those flyways, then it would go to the Fish and Wildlife Service and they would like Alabama right now is in their was second year of hunting season. They, the first couple of years you have what's called an experimental season and it's a very closely watched, very carefully regulated season. Uh, and, and so they would apply, basically you're applying to have an experimental season. You go through a couple of years, three or four years of experimental season. And if everything works out the way you predicted it would, then you can basically make that season operational. And so Kentucky and Tennessee have operational seasons. We we basically are going forward every year. Alabama is still tentative. They're still watching what they're doing, but uh, you know they're they're following the lead that Kentucky and uh, Tennessee made, and they 
in theory, they should have an operational season in a year, year or two. And there are only a small number of states in the eastern U.S. for which having a sandhill crane season even makes sense with respect to the distribution of these birds. There aren't very many that make it into Mississippi. There aren't very many that make it into Arkansas or Missouri, um, Iowa. You know, so you're not really uh, – that's one of the things that's kind of self-regulating here in terms of who is going to be – in theory, applying for a sandhill crane season. I say I threw Georgia under the bus a little bit there. They're one that would have a really hard time with the hunting season because of the Florida population birds. You know, they would have to, you know, those birds are non-migratory. In theory, they wouldn't want to hunt those, so they'd have to protect those, and it, it would be a complicated process for them to do it. So everybody has some sort of challenges when it comes to comes through the hunting season. But again, if the, the draw the line, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, then going north like Indiana uh, into, again, the Great Lakes states, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and then uh, Minnesota are all states that could potentially right now have hunting seasons. But as I mentioned earlier, these birds are, their population range is expanding we're seeing things that we didn't see a few years ago. Traditionally, this eastern population totally went through, kind of down through eastern Tennessee and into uh, Florida. Now there's a huge group of birds that go into western Tennessee and even into Louisiana. So, there, you know, what we know about this population in the 10 years that I've really been working with them has completely changed. And in the next decade, who knows what we you might have a you might have a hunting season on cranes in Louisiana and and a decade. Yeah, John, you kind of went where I was going uh, with this conversation, talking about the migration pattern of these birds. Uh, we moved to West Tennessee just uh, about a year ago, and last year, last fall, uh, one of the it was very obvious to me. I heard it off in the distance. If you ever if you've ever heard sandhill cranes, you will never mistake them for anything else. It is just the most magnificent sound. It carries for miles. And and I heard it and I'm like, holy cow, sandhill cranes. And I looked up and way up there in the sky, there they were. They eventually came over where I could see them. And I actually saw several different flocks of sandhill cranes here in southwest Tennessee. And I thought that was fascinating, you know, just uh, having seen them on the prairies of Canada and then to see them in Tennessee, I um, I marveled at them. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there are, there's at times more than t the, the hop-in refuge in western Tennessee, uh, there are times where there's more than 10,000 cranes on that on that area. So and those birds are working around western Tennessee wow. and going, in, like I said, into Louisiana at times. And so that population, it seems to be more and more expansion. And, you know, it's just it's so much fun. And in the 10 years that since this we started a hunting season, the amount of science that's been done on this population, the amount of research the amount of understanding that we have on these birds has so dramatically increased uh, that you know, the the satellite telemetry and things like that. We're we're following birds and learning that man, they go all these different places that we never even do as a biologist here in Kentucky. The, the satellites were showing me places that there were cranes that we had no idea there were cranes, and that even the hardcore birders who know where every bird is didn't know that there were cranes there. And so it's. Uh, some cool technology helping us really understand these birds better and better. But what we're seeing is that it is a population that's on the move, that's is growing and, and it's changing. What it does, the population is doing is, is changing. As I mentioned earlier, 
the entire population used to go to Central Florida. Ten years ago, the entire population went to Central Florida. Now it's nowhere near that percent. I mean, most of the birds last year never went south of Indiana. Uh, it was a warm winter, and they the last couple of years, uh, we the birds never really went south. So uh, you know, we're 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 seeing some differences and changes in how they how they are. But you know, we're as this population grows, we're going. Uh, certainly see all kinds of different uh, things happen in the next decade or so. Are there active efforts to um, to deploy additional GPS transmitters on cranes? Are there ongoing studies of that nature in the eastern U.S.? There are. There's a study, uh, my, my knowledge, one just finished up in Minnesota, and uh, there is another project that's going right now in Ontario, uh, that's that's uh, really again some interesting stuff coming out of Ontario now with these birds. And it, just a few years ago, they were barely into Ontario. And now they are again that range expansion of where they are nesting. It seems to more and more. In fact, there there are areas that we're interested in in Minnesota and Ontario where they're nesting side by side with mid continent population birds, or their lines mm. have crossed over. And so we may, you know, we call these Eastern population cranes, but there's some possibility that, you know, that there wasn't really an Eastern population and a mid-continent population way back when we started the show with you asking Mm -hmm. me about what those ranges were. Mm -hmm. Now they nest side by side. So maybe it was all just one population that through over harvest was limited to this one little tiny area in Wisconsin. And they really are. That uh, was really part of a bigger population. Yeah, I asked that about any active studies using those GPS transmitters because the cranes, being a, a long-lived species, and also having kind of a, a morphology, having these big, long, featherless legs, where you can attach a solar-powered GPS transmitter, that's it's going to um, be a bit more reliable long-term. Not going to get feathers covering the solar panel necessarily. Uh, you have a chance to study these birds for four, five, maybe even longer uh, number of years and see how patterns of individual birds, tendencies of individual birds may change through time. That that alone is kind of fascinating to me. I know some of that type of work has been done with hooping cranes where they're able to follow these birds for many, many years and seeing how individual birds respond to changing landscapes and other changing factors. Pretty fascinating. So might be seeing some of that same work with sandhill cranes. The hooping cranes, you, it's hard to find one that doesn't have a satellite transmitter on it. Uh, because <laughs> they, true. yeah, they have, they, but uh, the, the sandhills, it's, it's a small number, but again, the, the information they provide is so interesting. The, the Minnesota bird, birds, when they were catching them, to see one year they follow a pathway that kind of comes through Indiana, through Kentucky, headed to Florida. And then the next year, boom, they're going to that hop-in refuge in western Tennessee. And and then even some years they were jumping and switching to the central flyway route, following mid-continent migration routes. And so we're, we're, we're just on the the beginnings of learning about these species and the more money that we can continue to uh, put into researching them, the more we'll learn and by having hunting seasons that focused a lot of research money towards the species because we wanted to make sure that we were doing the right thing. And, and so we have our, like I said, our knowledge base for this species has, uh, has grown dramatically 
in, in recent years. Yeah, the harvest of this species in the eastern U.S. has increased over the past uh, nine or so years, obviously, with the new uh, with the new the opportunities and with expanding opportunities. And the same thing is occurring in the mid-continent based on my reading of some of this literature. Uh, hunters are, are learning more about this resource. They're learning, as you mentioned, they can stymie even the best hunter on any given day. But hunters are learning more about the, their behavior, their movements, their patterns, and hunters are becoming more successful at harvesting this bird and taking advantage of it and, and enjoying what is a wonderful resource and an absolutely fantastic um, uh, bird to eat. It's uh, quite frankly, I, and most most hunters, waterfowl hunters, will tell you it's right up there uh, with greater white-fronted geese in terms of uh, the quality of that meat. It's it's truly re- remarkable, and they're a fascinating bird, and, and you know hunters play a role in its conservation and the growth of this population. So, um, John, I, I think that has exhausted the questions that I have for you. But before we close this out, I want to give you an opportunity to share anything else that you think would be of importance to our listeners. Uh, I think that, you know, I think we've covered most of the details. I would tell folks that if you are interested in hunting sandhill cranes in eastern Kentucky and eastern the U.S., again, be it Kentucky, Tennessee, or Alabama, I think all three states have opportunities for out of state hunters. Uh, that there are, you know, over time, I think those opportunities will get better and better, and there'll be more and more opportunities to do it. But uh, you know, if you if you're interested in in hunting them, and it is a, you know, it is one of the greatest challenges that I've ever experienced. I've hunted since the '70s. I've hunted ducks and geese, and and uh, there's nothing that's kicked my butt like a sandhill crane. Uh, so they are they are a challenging thing bird. And the Texas pan, when I was in the Texas panhandle, the, you could set up in a field with ten thousand cranes in it the night before, and all ten thousand would come back, and it would be like the Red Sea parting around your decoys. They were not having any part. They could see you and beat you in so many ways. So it's a real challenge in there, but they are, they are uh, excellent, excellent table fare. I guess they're not called ribeye in the sky or flying filet for nothing. They are, they are, they are really good. John, I did have one other question. It occurred to me. I know you are a dog, a retriever aficionado. I would imagine that you don't go out in the field for any type of migratory bird hunting without at least one dog with you. I have to ask you, when you went crane hunting, did you take your dog? And if so, did your dog wear goggles? <laughs> I did not take, I did not take my dog when I hunted Santa because it is a, it is a risk. They have a very sharp bill that can poke the dog's eyes. And even birds that you think are dead uh, will stand up right as you get to them. So uh, I just never, like you said, I am obsessed. I do field trials with retrievers, and uh, it's not really a hunt unless my lab is with me. But uh, in in this case, it's one time I did not take uh, did I take the dog swan hunting or sandhill crane hunting. So okay, they uh, they pat they missed out on both of those. Uh, and so the swans, was that because just the, the threat that a swan would pose to to a dog as well? It's just a big old bird. I mean, it's just something, yeah. I mean, carrying it and whatever, it's just too much of a risk to, for it to beat up the dog. And it's just, uh, you know, this what you get one. So, you know what, I can walk and pick up my one for that case. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that because I've seen some pictures of dogs wearing these goggles and I just want to emphasize, I mean, that's not a joke. I mean, people are put those goggles on the dogs for a reason or better yet, in your case, you don't even take that chance. Don't even take the, don't even take the dog out there. So I I just didn't think it was worth it. And my dog would, uh, I can't imagine what he would do if you tried to put goggles on it. 
it would be a nightmare. I'd spend the whole time fighting it, keep goggles on it. <laughs> you need to start that from when he's a puppy. Yeah, you would have a long time before. John, thanks again. This has been great. I've I've learned a lot. You know, I've I've encountered sandhill cranes in the in the mid continent before many times, and uh, and like I said, that's a whole discussion we need to have to touch on on the opportunities out there. But I've learned a lot about the eastern population, and and I appreciate you taking the time to discuss all this with us. It's been great, John. I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. John Brunges with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. We appreciate his time and his expertise in, in helping us understand a bit more about eastern sandhill cranes. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job. And to you, we thank you, as always, for your support of the podcast, for sharing your time with us, and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.